Okay, so when we left, I think we were talking about the the verse on respect and humility, contentment and gratitude. And here it says the timely hearing of the Dharma. Um, I I like the um, the chanting book translation of um, frequently. Let's see, hearing the Dhamma frequently taught. I mean, it's um, as you know, one of the crucial steps in awakening to hear the Dhamma frequently taught and then to memorize it and remind ourselves of it. Give ourselves Dhamma talks, (laughs) even when we can't hear other people give Dhamma talks. Oh, and we also got a little bit into the next one, being patient and easy to correct. And here, Ajahn Brahmali says, seeing monks and nuns. Thank you, Ajahn, for including the the nuns. (laughs) Um, Seeing venerated seekers of the truth. And, of course, that includes everyone, too. Everyone, uh, not just the monastics. In the Pali a little different. Talks about oh being patient and yes, it's um samana. So it is the the monastic form that they're describing. Even though we know that there are many lay seekers of the truth and they're good to listen to too, as long as they're sticking to the the original Dhamma. Any questions or comments so far or things that came up over the break? Gabrielle? Great. Thank you, Aya. Um, Yes, something I was uh, reflecting during lunch um, and um, how it really, well, when you spoke of um, uh, us having good karma in order to be here, uh, that really um, stirred a lot of happiness in me. And, uh, and then over lunch, I was reflecting on contentment because we had been, um, there had been some discussion around that. And it brought to mind uh, one of the Buddha's um, suggestions around recollecting our own good deeds and how difficult it is to do that, because here, uh, with our Western point of view, we tend to be trained to be critical, and um, uh, not. So I, I just thought maybe if you would offer some um, thoughts around that, um, because I would think that in reflecting on our good deeds, it's going to cause contentment to rise. Mm. Yes, and it should cause joy to arise. And you're right, Gabrielle, it's a really big issue for us, particularly it seems in the West. 
Um, there's this tradition that you might know about in Sri Lanka where people will keep a journal of the merit that they make, the good things that they do. And of course, you know, that's making offerings as a temple or whatever, but it's a lot of other things, all the things that um, the PFOD community is doing to share uh, resources and, and generosity and, you know, even the receiving of generosity and that kind of heart open way is a good thing. And um, our virtuous actions and, you know, there's, there's a wide range of the ways in which we act and speak in accordance with Dhamma in ways that are inspiring or supportive to others and uh, keeping truthfulness, resisting doing things that are not good. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we could go through and, well, I didn't intentionally kill anything today. I didn't take anything that wasn't given and walk ourselves through the precepts. I thought about it, but I didn't do it (laughs) or whatever it is. And it's um, a tendency. So they, they will write down the good things that they do. And then someone will read that list when you're dying to remind you, you know, what you did. And I, I found when I first, encountered that was that when I tried to recall the good things that I did, I couldn't think of a thing. And there's some pretty thick delusion there. If we can't, we're basically good people. If we can't think of anything good that we're doing, we're really, there's something off in the way we're thinking and holding our view of ourselves or our view of what's good. And it's really, anytime we catch a glimpse of delusion, we should dig into it and try to understand how do I look at this from a realistic perspective? And can I recognize even these things that I think, well, of course, I mean, what what some people say is, well, you know, of course I should be doing that. That doesn't count because it's something I should be doing. I shouldn't lie. So therefore, if I don't lie, I don't count that. It's just like, that's like, you know, like the bar, (laughs) it has to be above the bar. It has to be like really exceptional. I have to give a million dollars to, no, (laughs) we want to really notice the good and in, in all of the things that we do, even the smile, even the kind wish for someone, because we have an opportunity. I, I really appreciated once when Ajahn Pasano said, we always have the opportunity to do good every moment. And that, and that, that can even be something we, we think of. Uh, thinking of someone in a good way, in a kind way, in a well-wishing way, opening the heart, um, genuine metta is a is a profound good action. Even if it's for a moment, the Buddha said, better than giving tons of offerings. True metta, um, real love for beings, and so you know, really being able to open up to that in ourselves and congratulate ourselves and we're 
there's a fear that our ego is gonna, you know, um, expand and we're going to become, you know, uh, self-important and, you know, all that stuff. But in reality, no, um, as we develop generosity, kindness, we develop in the precepts. I think it's actually humbling if the ego is trying to appropriate it, which it it tries with everything. It wants to make a self out of it. But if we continue to really reflect on the sense of self in the right way, then we are more and more humbled by the fruition of good karma, the results of our good actions, and and we're, you know, more and more in awe of the Dhamma. So I think reflecting on the things that we do that we know are good, are wholesome, whether that's generosity or virtuous actions or really working hard to solve a problem, doing something to help someone, to encourage, to support, um, reflecting on the things that we avoided that would have been bad or unskillful behavior. And this is all valuable. When we change these um, really ingrained patterns in ourselves, you know, like, you know, we're um, maybe we have a pattern of, you know, kind of responding irritably when someone you know, interrupts us or something like that, and then we then we learn how to calm that down and change our pattern, then we should really congratulate ourselves. <laughs> Thank you. Steve? <clears throat> Thank you, Aya, Aya Santasika. Um, I wonder if you could com- comment on easy to correct that's always caught my attention, um, you know, because, let's see, I mean, there's a certain sense of going against the stream, doing this at all. And then sometimes with all best intentions, some Buddhist hierarchy above us or something may not, they're not Buddhist. They may be difficult, but at the same time, we need to r- r- roll with whatever offerings come to us that'll help us grow. So try to navigate through all that. I probably for you, for the nuns in terms of, you know, male, male Orthodox hierarchy, you run into that in various ways all the time. So I wondered if you could sort of help, how do you tune into what's, you know, the Dharma without selfing getting in the way and how do you navigate that? Yeah. Um, you know, some of it I, I brought up earlier about just when someone has an observation or they are um, wanting to train us in some way to point out something that we should improve or have done wrong. The first thing is to stop and listen, to really take it in. And... And then really look at what what it means and what, what we can do to improve what we're doing before we, or maybe without ever um, correcting them, if they're also doing the same thing. In, in the 
in the Dhammavinaya, we see the Buddha referring to, uh, you know, if monastics are, are giving each other feedback, one of the first things is to make sure you're not doing the same thing yourself. So this being easy to correct has the side of, you know, I'm, I'm willing to listen and take in what I'm hearing, regardless of what I think of the source. Take it at face value first and see if there's something I can learn from it. If it feels like it's completely off, um, being offered from a place of jealousy or greed or hatred or some other kind of um, um, discrimination that's inappropriate, then that's not my problem. That's their problem. I don't have to... Um, fix that. I can, if if it's appropriate, uh, to try to point that out if it's going to do some good, but it's good to follow the five courses of right speech that the Buddha talked about that I do that if it's got a good purpose behind it, not just to defend myself or to defend my my view of myself, but rather yeah, what I what I am going to say needs to be true. It needs to be uh, there. I need to be saying it for a good purpose. You don't say everything that's true. Sometimes there's just no good reason to correct the other person. Like I received some feedback recently that was from something that happened a while back, over a year ago. And, you know, when you think about it, then you you can bring up the context within which this thing happened and you realize that the person has forgotten the context, which is true in our own minds. A lot of times we look into the past and we don't like what happened, but we forget all the pressures and the things that were going on at the time that were contributing to the, the way people were behaving. So it's like, you know, you, you may know that there are good reasons why, you said or did what you did, you get this feedback that that wasn't um, the best thing or was somehow hurtful or whatever. And then, and, you know, you could, you could try to defend it or correct it, but there's really no point. And, it, and it's like, it's not really going to make anything better. So just drop it. You know, it's like, it's like so what? You know, it's like um, <laughs> the, um, in a, I don't know if you know who Master Wa was, but in the uh, CTTB, uh, City of 10,000 Buddhas, Chinese tradition, one of the teachers there, uh, Reverend Hangshur, he would talk about how Master Wa would teach his disciples to take a loss. Just take a loss. If there's an argument, take a loss. Just let it go. Don't worry about defending your whatever you think you are you know, so much. I mean, there are times when it's appropriate because it's going to help if you set things uh, more straight. And other times it doesn't matter. And to not be driven by our sense of self. And then, um, so in these five courses of right speech, it has to be true. It has to have a good purpose. It, sh- it needs to come from a heart of loving kindness and not inner hatred. And it should be said in a gentle, not a harsh way. Of course, that can vary depending upon, like, what's 
mm, going to be helpful. Sometimes, for example, Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Mahabur, they'll say things in a pretty sharp way to wake the person up, but it's all coming from the right place. And then the fifth thing is at the right time. So, you know, other people, the Buddha said, other people might talk to us at the wrong time, or they might say things that are not true, or they might say things that are, you know, not with a good purpose and so on like that. And it's, it's really not our problem. Our problem comes in when we are not um, patient, balanced, wise, truthful, etc. on our side. There's always going to be that kind of thing happening in the world. And if, if, if we can learn how to let it go, to know what's, what's good, what's true, what's wholesome, and what's unwholesome, and, and to realize that, you know, maybe I can help if I say something, but if it looks like there's no way to help, just let it go. And be easy to correct, taking it in. Don't push back. Don't correct them in return, but just make sure I use everything I can to improve myself. And then that example can really help others. Thank you. And can I just add one, one more nuance and then I'll drop out is, uh, you know, for me, this is why sort of steeping myself in the suttas as much as possible and the fact that the Buddha you know, he didn't have a successor, but the Dhamma, that really helps orient constantly. So the uh, pressure from above or something, it can be held differently. But in terms of correcting, what about action? I mean, what about if there's something that someone, I'm not quite sure if it's easy to correct, but, you know, says, oh, this should happen, but it seems clear to you that that should happen. And so you have to do something they might disagree with if they're in some position of authority, dharmically speaking. Um, um. I mean, how do you, you know, I've been in a situation a couple of times, I just try to be diplomatic about it, but sometimes I've had to, to be. <laughs> I just wonder if you have any thoughts. Well, if it goes against virtue, you certainly don't want to do. Oh, oh yeah, right. No, exactly. Yeah. Always <laughs> got to call that out, no matter how high they think they are in the hierarchy. <laughs> um, and... Hmm. And if it's something less than less important than that, um, I think we really have to weigh whether it matters or not. And um, again, constantly looking at why it matters to me. Why do I care? Where where is my investment as you know in my in self coming into play? You know, most of the time when we get angry, a lot of times when we get sad or upset about injustice to others, it's really about us. And we really have to examine that um, because that's dukkha. It's suffering within us, something that's connected to attachment. And it's good to excavate and alleviate <laughs> that um, so, yeah, and, and just to kind of respond to that idea that, you know, yeah, we're um, female monastics, we're the, the 
monastic culture is patriarchal, but the Buddha made it um, clear that uh, the bhikkhunis could live on their own, making their own decisions, having their own policy. We don't really have a, a monastic hierarchical structure above us. As long as we're not living in a male monastery where, you know, there's seniority. Now, there are definitely monks that we look to for guidance, and they're very much more experienced than we are and have a tremendous amount of wisdom, but they're also the ones that are supportive of women being ordained and, and developing. And I'm, and I'm not just talking about the ones who can only be supportive in secret. You might say they have to be a little careful about the monastic politics but a lot of those monks in those systems and like in the Thai forest tradition are very supportive of us and we rely on them um, to, to uh, help with guidance and their experience. Um, you know, you talk to someone like Ajahn Pasano who's been an abbot for so long and he's incredibly supportive and helpful to us. Definitely uh, wants the bhikkhuni order to thrive and to grow and, you know, we, it, you know, it's it's good that there's, it's good if there's an opportunity to work with or around someone who's got authority who's not using it in a good way. Just so we're not coming from a selfish selfish interest. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Suzanne. Thank you, Aya. Um, I have written down here something that you said earlier. Um, as we let go of attachments, our carings begin to change. Um, there are times that I think I've let go, but I, I have a feeling that there's more to this process of letting go than just just a choice or just an intellectual acknowledgement. And I wonder if this attachment is somehow embodied in some way, because I just I don't think it's just an intellectual decision. Oh, I'll just let go. And then later on, I pick it up again, and then it becomes like a battle. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could say if a word or two about that piece of phenomena. And also, do you think attachments, I know in early stages of development, there is a kinesthetic fusion with the mother and the child. Mm -hmm. which which supports life um, but as as the developmental stage matures, do you think there's still a, a an embodied way that we become attached without really knowing that, and then when we try to let go, it's head up without looking at the embodied aspect of the attachment. I, am I being clear, Aya? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. It seems Thank really you. clear Thank and you. true. Um, 
you're you're absolutely right that there's something that happens at the intellectual level where you start to see the the value of letting go, where you start to see the suffering of clinging and attachment, and that isn't enough, uh, but it's a really good beginning. And we have to sort of see that first, and then um, there is a deeper, like you know, there is a deeper letting go. That happens, but it happens really through insight, and we can't force that. So, you know, when when we notice that we're clinging, and how do we know when we're clinging? We're suffering. There's dukkha. When when we when we are not attached, then when someone uh, close to us is doing something unskillful or foolish, or whatever, then we have equanimity, not dukkha. Um, but when, we're, when the dukkha, when the pain arises, when the suffering comes in, when we're feeling uncomfortable, then we can look at that. And it's really that same process, regardless of whatever we might be clinging to, where we, we work with the feeling that arises in the body, and staying present with that. And there are a few different ways using Anapanasati or using something like feeding your demons out of the sort of uh, Lama Seltramalioni has kind of adapted that ancient practice to a more modern psychological format, but it works. And there are other ways to work because you're right, it's embedded in our body. It's it's not just in the mind. You cannot decide, I'm going to let go now <laughs> and have it be over. And you, you, it, you can make progress, definitely reflection on what we're clinging to and why we're clinging to it and the impermanent nature of it and the dukkha of it and the not-self. This is not me, not mine, even no matter how many times we say in a lifetime, my children, my son, my daughter, my partner no matter how many times we reaffirm it in the English language, it's still the reality is they're not ours. And we can, you know, reflect on that, the reflecting upon it, the continual practice, this makes, tills the ground, makes it fertile for the insight to arise and for that letting go to occur fully. It won't be complete until there's our hunship and we're really like finished with the whole idea of self. Um, but that's okay. So, so we, we let go some and our heart expands in a more, um, I want to say, um, you know, like with the Brahma Viharas rather than with a selfish attachment. And then it comes up again, like you say, because there's, it's, it can be extremely deeply embedded, even over lifetimes. We might have a relationship with another another living being that we've been uh, associated with in past lives. You just never know where all this comes from. If we did know, we would have so much more understanding for ourselves and others. You know, where this karmic extreme has been, we go, oh, okay, you know, I get it. This is really hard. No wonder. Um, but so what, what we can do, like we're talking about being patient, um, this is part of where the patience comes in. It's like when that, 
when an attachment becomes apparent again, then we work with it again in the same ways, um, bringing in the Dhamma principles, bringing in the practice, uh, and, and again, you know, being really kind to ourselves, understanding and supportive of our development and not impatient because we don't know how much there is to unravel there. And I'm not trying to say that we have to kind of resolve all of the past karma. That's not possible. Insight comes and a big chunk will fall away. Like those pictures of the icebergs that suddenly a big piece just (laughs) falls off. A lot of times that, that happens. And then, um, there's less less chance of kind of going back to a previous more uh, entangled position. So we just keep working on it. And what you said is true, of course. When a human being is born, and we we go through the stages of development. Uh, part of that is uh, really it's essential that we have a, a bond with our parents, and you know it's. It, there's nothing wrong with any of that. And it's also true that the body really struggles to hang on. And even though we know the body is nothing, it's just a bunch of elements collected together, held together based on some conditions that are going to fall away and it's going to fall apart, the body will still struggle. Um, and, and in the end, it will still struggle. And if we have enough mindfulness, we can just have empathy and understanding for the body struggling. You know, if at the end, instead of feeling peaceful, we're grasping for air because our breathing is getting cut off, that's okay. It's just natural. The body will react. We don't have to react in the mind. And that's where we want to put our effort, you know, take good care of the body. But just to say it's the same kind of thing. Some of these deeply ingrained patterns and energies um, if they keep arising, we just keep working with them. It's okay. Don't think, oh, I'm a mess. That's just the self getting involved. And uh, we, can, we can step back and observe and, uh, and work with it. Um, thank you so much for your thorough, thorough re- re- response. Thank you. You're welcome. There's always the danger that I'll talk too much, way too much. So <laughs> I'm glad it's useful when it's useful. Okay. Um, all right. I think we were looking at being patient, easy to correct. Seeing monks and nuns, timely discussion of the Dhamma, frequent discussion of the Dhamma, then on to asceticism and the spiritual life. Um, let's see what we have here. In this translation, it's self control and living a noble life and realizing the noble truth and the attainment of Nibbana. So you kind of get the sense. Asceticism, I think, can have a little bit of a harsher feeling to it sometimes. 
How about our chanting book? I'm getting there. I turn the page. Ardent, committed to the holy life, seeing for oneself the noble truths and the realization of Nibbana. I like the way that's put. You know, this, it's not really being um, harshly ascetic, that's for sure. It's about being restrained and in the ways that are helpful for restraint. I mean, if you've ever taken up any kind of a practice, like uh, remember I was studying poetry writing and, you know, you get an assignment where you have to write it in iambic pentameter or something. And it feels like a restriction, but it's actually a forcing function for more quality and uh, creativity. And we can think about that in the ways that we use restraint. That when we create a discipline for ourselves or we're following a discipline that the Buddha laid down, we can find um, a creative aspect in ourselves or the resources and the resilience and the um, strength that we might overlook if we just kind of let ourselves go whichever way we want. And so having that commitment to um, restraining ourselves from the things that are not wholesome and also, you know, that bring about more strength and self-control, self-discipline, this noble way of life. You know, there are so many references in the suttas to the way that a noble disciple behaves. And it's useful to look at those. The Buddha will talk about, you know, contrast the behavior and attitudes of the noble disciple with the untaught ordinary person. And having been an untaught ordinary person, I can really say makes a big difference (laughs) and it's useful to look at what it means to live as a noble disciple and you know people will say well for that you have to have one of the attainments of you know stream entry or once returning or non-returning or arhantship and okay maybe but I don't think we should let any ideas about where we are on the path hold us back We should think in terms of, I'm going to live like that to the best of my ability, and then that will encourage the unfolding of those milestones to occur, knowing that if we practice the way the Buddha said, we will awaken. And so this realization Seeing for ourselves the noble truths. It's again that same idea that it, we get it intellectually, we, we make every effort to take it in, understand it, and then as we practice and as we calm the mind, the true direct knowledge has an opportunity to arise. If our mind is busy with the world all the time, we don't give it enough of a chance. So it's important to 
make space for awakening and see nirvana, nibbana. I like the Pali myself, seeing nibbana for ourselves, our own realization. That's the only way it can happen. And the arahants tell us it's not far away. It's right here. We have to shift our way of seeing to where we're not looking from the place of self. And then this description of what it's like. A mind that remains unshaken by the ups and downs of the world. Although involved in worldly ways, unshaken the mind remains. That's from the current um, Bhikkhuni, our, our chanting book a little bit different from the monks right now. Although in contact with the world, unshaken the mind remains. I mean, we're all dealing with the vicissitudes of sankhara, as long as we're in a human body. And if the mind doesn't move, that's true equanimity. That's the equanimity that is right at the edge of Nibbana. And of course, the equanimity that is part of the realization of Nibbana. Sorrowless, stainless, and safe. This is one of the greatest blessings. And if, if we having performed these things, living in this way, how's it going, the chanting? They who live by following this path know victory wherever they go, and every place for them is safe. These are the highest blessings. I like that better. This one, similar. Having performed these things, having lived in this way, nowhere can you be conquered. Every place is secure. Wherever you go, you know, security doesn't come from the outside. And we can never bring enough love in from the outside to feel complete. I used to perform weddings, and it was a scary task because you'd see people, oh, now I'm whole, I have my partner, and you're thinking, oh, God. <laughs> going to be a rude awakening here <laughs> at some point. Um, no, it comes from inside. And it comes from this kind of life, these blessings. And these are choices we make that somehow in a mystical way meet up with the unfolding of the path, the way the Dhamma rises to meet us when we're ready. And it can come out of, you might think, deeper reaches of the mind to really establish that wisdom within us. From where there's no going back, there's no, 
falling away. You can't unsee it. More questions, comments? Yes, Michael. Hi, uh, thank you so much for everything. Um, as you've been going along, I've uh, been following uh, with uh, the Nisarobiku's translation. Uh, of the, uh -huh. And one of the things that he translates uh, is instead of highest blessing, he says highest protection. Huh. And, and I was uh, taking a look at the... Uh, especially the last couple of verses. Um, and uh, he says, uh, a mind that when touched by the ways of the world is unshaken, sorrowless, dustless, at rest. Um, this is the highest protection. Um, and then kind of he goes on with the same thing. But, but I was just, um, I think the whole idea of safety has uh, come you know, much more into the, into play for me, especially with COVID and, um, and how uh, trying to remain unshaken in this situation has not always been easy, but uh, certainly is uh, uh, the core of what uh, has been helpful for me in, in practice recently. Um, but also one of the things that he said uh in the, the ways of the world uh, was um, he, uh, in a note, he calls that, it, it's, I guess the word is lokadama, in which yeah. is both the uh, gain, loss, status, loss of status, praise, criticism, pleasure, uh, and, and pain. Uh, that certainly is the ups and downs. <laughs> so anyway. The worldly wins. What about in your own practice, Michael? I mean, you said the COVID um, is, is helping you. For you, when you see the difference between, what did we say, the blessings, um, highest blessings, or um, the way that we see it translated in other ways, what does it mean to you? How well, do you see I guess, the you mangala? Know, yeah, a lot of what has been happening is a lot of fear and caution around, you know, where I go, what I do, mm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, and being able to, uh, I guess, you know, for me, being able to sit and uh, not be as shaken by that uh, has been, been helpful in first of all, helping me make good decisions, you know, uh -huh. um, and, and at the same time, um, you know, finding that looking at this whole situation as uh, I'm much more a monastic now than I was before, you know, and really using it as a time of practice um, that's been helpful, you know. Uh, so, you know, um, I guess that, yeah, that's. that's Have probably. you ever tried monastic life? Um, 
I've wanted to, but I think my partner might have a problem with that. Mm. It would be <laughs> was... good to get your partner's permission. <laughs> maybe maybe you could try a temporary ordination sometime and get a taste of what that's uh, like. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Uh, I was an Episcopal priest for 15 years. Oh, okay. And, and spent, have spent a lot of time uh, in uh, monasteries uh, that were Christian monasteries, Cistercian monasteries, things like that, you know. And I do do a retreat or two every year. So, you know, but I also, I have a lovely family that I uh, feel very connected to. Good. Okay. Do you have any questions? Does Biko Bodhi have a translation of this? Hmm. Yeah, probably. Um, certainly. I couldn't find it quickly. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's it's in the Sutta Nipata, which he came out with not long ago, along with the commentary. So. Oh, okay. I'll take that. a look. At that. You might find that interesting. Yeah. 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 It's um. Two four. So the second chapter in the Sutta Nipata, number four. Right. Thank you. You're welcome. Linda? Thank you, Aya. Um, I have a slightly nebulous comment. And just um, if there's any, um, you know, response that, that comes to mind, one of the things that really um, sort of grabbed my attention that I want to sit with a little bit um, was, and I only have the chant book version, um, but when you spoke of uh, that version of, um, you know, ardent committed to the holy life, I guess asceticism and spiritual life. Um, and, and, and I won't remember this exactly, but you, um, I think you made a reference to sort of the seeming contradiction of like restraint leading to freedom and, and, um, might be going a little farther with that extrapolation, but the, but the idea of, you know, what kind of arose in me was, um, I don't know, this felt sense of like, like comfort and safety, like with, uh, within that restraint, it's, it's kind of like the idea that you brought up of, um, you know, like I said, the se- I guess the seeming contradiction or just almost the, like the relief of like, I think of it as, I guess the, like the decision that makes the other decisions like imperfectly. Right. Uh, In the sense, you know, I can have, you know, wish for a spiritual life and take some actions and be wildly imperfect. But, but just, I guess what I'm sort of percolating with in that discussion of like that section was just the, um, you know, a bit of like the, the safe container. And I just, I also love that word around like safety and, um, you know, still my favorite, one of my favorite stories in the suttas is, you know, when the elephant charges the Buddha and just that whole idea. So just, I'm just percolating with that section on um, sort of like restraint, but that restraint being its own safe container. Um so. Yeah, and renunciation, you know, a lot of times people kind of shrink back a little bit from that 
idea because it feels like, oh, I'm not going to be able to have what I want or do what I want. And yet it's, it's a trading up. I mean, you renounce that which is more coarse, more, more crude, more downpulling, and you embrace those things that are more uplifting and clarifying and, yeah, protective. So the, you know, very simple but easily experienced example is the precepts, the five precepts. Now, if you really have the precept to not drink alcohol and you go somewhere where people are drinking alcohol and you start to watch how ridiculous they become and you don't have anything to worry about the next morning, but they may really wonder what they had been up to, you know, <laughs> and it and it's just becomes very obvious from that position of holding precepts and restraint that we are protected by it and you know like in the in the chanting is it the evening chanting the dhamma upholds those who holds those who uphold it from falling into delusion you know it's like this is this is a a real thing and when we have wise restraint we are protected and it's freeing it leads it brings freedom not oppression thank you so much the the image that came up uh for me or like the felt scent image was almost like thinking about a train like, you know, on the tracks in the right way, like there's not, a, um, not that it's not effort, but it's just, it's contained. It's like, say, you know, just, uh, so that, that discussion was really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Hiya. Yes, Alistair. Hold on a second. Sounds a little like the voice of God. <laughs> I uh... <laughs> great. I will use. There's. I. I discovered that I. Um, where am I? There we go. As the host, I can't put up my hand. No oh, hi, Alistair. Go ahead. So I have a. When I hear the. Um, the highest blessings all the way through, and I don't always get all the way through it when I'm looking at it myself. It's that. It's the end part, this notion for me of sort of a place of non-remorse, of safety, which for me is safety. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. back, it looks like, okay, these are guidelines on how to get to non-remorse. All the mm-hmm. things pass through in life, parents and jobs and places, mm-hmm. you know, advice on tips on getting to non-remorse. Yeah. But that idea is motivating for me when I can get there. My challenge is um, things like you have to get a lot right to get to no remorse. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, there are moments when I really sense I can feel past, you know, the genuine safety, you know, of being, in a, of not having remorse. That's a, that's, it really is a safety. But I can't hold that that actual feeling very long. So I don't know if you've got any particular 
thoughts on how I can help reflect on that or because it's very much mm. fully blossomed. Mm. Well, there are layers to it, I think. First of all, when we set our intention to live in this way, and I'm glad that you talked about it the way that you did, when we take this sutta in its entirety, we're looking at the recipe for safety, success, no remorse, like you said, sorrowless, stainless, um, you know, freedom from suffering. And so... This is, um, as a collection, the kind of thing we would like to wish for everyone in our life that we love. This is the kind of thing that we uh, can, you know, make our commitment to. This is how I want to live my life. And then, yeah, there can be um, a thousand missteps, but it doesn't matter in some sense because each time we can learn from it, we can... We can acknowledge and forgive and learn, as Ajahn Brahm says, and we can use that as um, a guide to um, really setting the patterns, because it's when we practice it over and over, we misstep and we, and we recognize it and we come back and we do it differently, that changes the karmic patterns, that changes our learned behaviors, even the wiring in our brain. And so it's a, it's a process. And over time, when we look back, we can see that there has been this change. So even though it feels like, oh, there are so many ways to get it wrong, um, there are many, many ways we get it right. And to keep using even what we do wrong as a way to get right. And this is the Buddha was big on rehabilitation. You know, like we confess our missteps every two weeks in the holy life. Um, Every full moon and new moon. And it's an opportunity to acknowledge what happened. Figure out how you want to handle it differently and clear the slate so you can handle it differently and go on. And it really begins to form new layers in our character, which then becomes our kama, which then becomes a shift in direction. And you know how, like, if you're driving a boat, especially a big one, if you shift just a degree or two, to one direction, when you get out 20 miles, you're in a very different place than you would have been if you hadn't made that course correction. And this is the Dhamma. And, you know, as long as you're on the path, you keep handling this stuff as it comes, (laughs) you're okay. It's going to go. It's a little like being on that train, um, that Linda was referring to, Ajahn Sumedho used to say, okay, you get on the bus of the Sangha and you ride and you'll get there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we just have to keep at it. Be sure you give yourself enough credit along the way. Thank you. <laughs>
You're welcome. Gabrielle. Gabrielle. Thank you, Aya. Um, just to add about the bus, I once heard a talk by Ajahn Brahm, who, and I repeat this to myself over and over again, don't get off the bus. <clears throat> so, but um, I wanted to um, just make a, a comment um, going back to this idea of a safe container. Um, uh, I, I like to um, sometimes look up words to find out what is the root word. And interestingly, contentment, the root word for contentment is container. So I was thinking that uh, in having this, um, you know, sort of this <clears throat> discipline and this simplicity that we bring into our lives, we also increase that contentment. I wonder if you could just offer some comments on that. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking that the root of the word in Pali, santuti or santusika, is santu, it's peace. And, you know, it, it yeah, there, there is, I feel like, um, yeah, the Buddha, the Buddha created this container for us. Um, it's, it's, um, the Buddha talked about every aspect of life. There's no, like, you go to church on Sunday and then on Monday, it's all, you know, different. <laughs> it's part of every part of our life, what you eat, how you eat, how you take care of the body, sleep, even tells the monastics about how to be in the bathroom you know it's like it's it's the whole thing and the container is formed and held together by the principles of dhamma the immutable natural law that when we do good good things the result and when we do bad things out of greed hatred delusion or fear then bad things result and sometimes we have a very narrow or short-sighted perspective that says, I don't see that, you know, I'm a good person, bad things happen to me. But the things we call bad in those cases might just be the natural results of having a human body. Everybody can get sick. We're all going to die. We all lose everything in the end. This is something we have to accept because it is Dhamma. Safety doesn't mean that you won't lose things. You know, it, it means that we can establish the heart without attachment and with immeasurable love, compassion, joy for the good, and equanimity. This is... Um, this is the safety beyond conditions. This realization of Nibbana. And yeah, um, it's a fabulous container. We know right where the edges are. Yeah, it's like the, the expression of the precepts as avoiding not not taking the life of any living creature, not taking what is not given, 
et cetera. It's very clear at the end of the day, you know whether you intentionally killed something or not. It's very different than when people turn it around and say um, to be harmless. And what does that mean? Was I harmless today? Can't quite be sure. If you look at the way the Buddha expressed things, it's very clear. So the framework of the container, the walls of the container, they're very clear. This is really helpful, even though it may not sound as flowery. But it's like this being guided by these principles, understanding these great blessings and making those choices um, what a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to put our confidence in. And then, you know, whatever happens, we have a way of handling it. And we have each other, others who are walking the path, that we support each other, remind each other, help each other. Candle? Um, will you, uh, chant the chant again before the day is through? Oh yeah, we could do it at the end if you like. That'd be great. Good, good idea. Thank you. So happy to be with you today. Always brings me such great joy. Good. Cynthia? Okay. Yeah, I love chanting too. I'm all for that. Um, (laughs) So you, I think it was when we, we were talking about um, accepting correction that you brought this up and it, and it triggered something that I struggle with sometimes. You were, ta- I, you, at some point you talked about when um, something unpleasant comes at you, you, you go in, you ground yourself in the body and see how you how it registers in the body and watch that and et cetera, which I'm used to doing. But what I find sometimes like, like if I'm, I, I, tr- I try often to kind of ask myself, you know, is there a version here? Is there a craving here? What's going on with that? And sometimes I feel it in the body. Sometimes there's like a contraction and I can watch it. And, and sometimes I can't, I don't see it in a physical form at all. It just, it's like, there's some, there's some knowing in the mind that there's some aversion to this situation or there's some Mm -hmm. craving, but, but that's all it is. And I find it hard to kind of work with that. It's like, how do I even watch what's going on if I can't even identify where it is? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. Yeah, you can just notice the thought then, because it sounds like it's a thought rather than a feeling. It's, it's, it doesn't even often have words to it. I mean, I think of a thought as like, yeah, a story or something. It's just like, I know there's a version here, but don't ask me how I know it. It's just, I somehow know that that mind state is present. Uh Yeah, so in whatever way you know it, because we do have different channels Mm. and different channels are more or less developed in different people. But, you know, however it is, you know it, you can still apply the the three characteristics. Okay. There's suffering. Mm -hmm. This is impermanent. I can just see it for what it is. It's a, it's a 
it's a passing phenomenon. Phenomenon. We don't have to take it seriously. I don't have to identify with it. Just look at that. Wow. There's a flash of jealousy there, or there's some, like you say, some aversion there. Hmm. Just observe it in whatever form it is. Even if you can't, like, identify how it's presenting. It's it's impermanent. It's dukkha, and it's not self, not me or mine. Okay, that's helpful. The the remembering not self is helpful because because I often I often attach to the to the state. You know, it's like that identify it as being you know me. I'm have I'm feeling aversion. Yeah, so that's right. helpful. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and, and it's important when we're working with feeling and um, mental states and all of these things that we we don't cling to them either. Like we can be, okay, I feel it in my body. If we hold on to it and we don't let it move and change, it's like we're being that. We're becoming that. And we, and we need to like let go. Um, step back, see it as a phenomenon passing through and not, um, not part of you. Anyone else? You look pretty content. I don't know about all of you without your cameras on, but any other? Oh, we have more hands. Candle. You've got me again. <laughs> um, this seems a lot like the one, uh, this is what should be done by those who are, you know, that same, um, mm-hmm. the uh, metta, is it the metta chant? Is that the Karyanamita yeah. one? Um, yeah. Do you know the circumstances under which this was given? This sutta? Highest blessings chant? Uh-huh. I can tell you what, what this um, Nalanda site says, I'm sure this comes from the commentary. It says, the word Mangala means blessing, auspicious sign, or good omen. In ancient India, people wanted to know what constituted a real blessing that makes life happy for them. This issue was even raised among deities, devas, in the heavenly plains. For 12 years, the deities argued, debated, and discussed about it. Some referred blessing as what is pleasurable to the senses, things that are pleasing to the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body. However, no satisfactory answer could be obtained. Then the devas of the Tawatinksa heavenly realm approached Saka, the leader of the devas, for his views, and Saka advised the devas to consult the Buddha. Thus, in the middle of the night, a certain deity, with his surprising splendor, came to visit the Buddha at the monastery of Anattapindaka in Jeta's grove near Savati. He asked the Buddha for the true meaning of blessing. In response, the Buddha delivered a discourse known as Mangala Sutta, in which 38 highest blessings are enumerated. And then it says that the Mangala Sutta is customarily chanted for blessings on auspicious occasions, 
Besides these, 38 blessings are ethical and spiritual in nature, providing a step-by-step training on the journey of life. It contains the Buddha's advice and guidance for the novice of life and ultimately leads one to the liberation from suffering. So it appears that this was given to the devas at night. Yeah, that comes down in the sutta itself. So a deva of stunning beauty asked, the Buddha. Well, the magic- and you know, in the suttas, the devas are like human beings. They get they get thought of and spoken about in the same way. It's they're just as real. Um, someone asked Ajahn Panyawato. I don't know if you know who he was, but he's a British um, monk who lived with Ajahn Mahabua for a very long time, something like forty years, and Ajahn Mahabua basically said he was an arahant when he died. Um, and uh, Ajahn Panyawato, someone asked him if devas are real, and he said they're as real as you and I are. Kind of opens a can of worms, but <laughs> kind of that idea. So, yeah, the devas, the devas sought teachings uh, a lot, and uh, I think they probably still do from those who are, attuned to other realms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, sure. That might have been more than you wanted to know. Never more. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Never more. I would I would go on, but I'll let other people ask questions. You know how I am. <laughs> Jay? Thank you, Aya. Um, there's the line in the chant about... Um, uh, hearing the Dhamma on appropriate uh, occasions. And um, one of the things that struck me during the pandemic is that uh, there's never been a time in history where it was so easy, especially for a layperson, to hear the Dhamma. I mean, I could spend three hours yeah. a day just trying to keep up with all the, the good talks that are going on. Um, and that's even a change. I, I've been kind of connected with this tradition for 10 or 11 years. And you know, when I started, it was kind of slim pickings, and it, it's really picked up. Um, I just wonder whether you have any advice about a good way to approach this, you know, huge bounty of of teachings that we have and integrate that into a practice. Thank you. Yes. First and foremost, think, observe carefully about the teachings you're listening to, to be sure that they're including renunciation and liberation, because there's you know, this tendency to want to glorify the sensual world and uh, sensual life and to not talk about liberation, to not talk about um, rebirth, uh, to not talk about kama, uh, to skip over restraint. <laughs> and so I don't have any doubt that you're already doing this, but I think that's the first thing that is necessary to say. Um, It's really, really important that the teachings are grounded in the suttas and the vinaya so that we're getting uh, what the Buddha actually said. There's a lot of quotes out there about uh, what the Buddha said that are not what the Buddha said, some of them even coming out of the mouths of really famous, highly respected teachers, which is a little scary. Um, what's that website, sister? The what's that website where they check the 
validity of the quote attributed to the Buddha? Fakebuddhaquotes.com. Fakebuddhaquotes.com. Check it out. Oh, thank you, Andy. Yes. Fake Buddha quotes. Um, you know, so we do want to first, first and foremost, make sure that it's uh, true Dhamma, really useful. Um, and then to not mistake listening for practice that we have to see it for ourselves. Sometimes it's good to kind of identify what the edges of your knowledge are, the edges of your direct experience. So what is it, you know, maybe you look at the Noble Eightfold Path and you say, okay, that's the one that I think is currently the weak link for me. Maybe look for something around that. Or there's something you read in the suttas, or there's something that you hear that you you know you're not really getting at a deep level, then open the mind to to getting it. And a lot of time we need a lot of silence um, too. We can't and direct practice. So you know, choosing uh, really identifying how much dhamma is healthy. Uh, how much Dhamma is really productive and being discerning about which pieces we're picking up. Because as you say, uh, there's so much available, we could just be, you know, kind of listening all the time, but skimming the surface. So if we, if we take a talk that really kind of brings up questions or, or, really addresses some of those edges of our of our understanding then dig into that and it's also good to participate like this with with a teacher to really ask the questions we have and really bring up our practice and even if it's not this forum maybe there are other forums where there are smaller groups places where you can really push into the into the places that you need to make progress. You know, a lot of times we can listen to the Dhamma, but we don't know how to apply it to our problems. Or we, we get stuck because we're in a, in a sticky dilemma ourselves in some way. And, and so finding, you know, really seeking out what we need. Don't waste your time. In other words, don't waste your time. You don't know how much you have. Try to really make good use of it. And don't just do this out of study. You don't have to listen to, you know, 20 different representations on one topic. Make sure that you get the real teaching that comes from within, um, and, and learn how to use these practices. When we really realize what these things mean, it's different than what we thought. You can't reason this out. You have to learn it through direct experience. So these are some of the things to take into account. And, it, and it's great that we have so many teachings available. Just don't lose sight because there's so much.
you know, that thing about the forest and the trees and all that, you know, try to sort out what's really going to help you not suffer ever again. Thank you. Welcome. Yes, Candle. Um, <laughs> whose picture is on the altar behind you? Oh, that's Ajahn Gunha. I wondered. I was thinking it might be. I only saw it. I only no, saw you it on the it. lunch break uh, thing. There it is. Oh, there he is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Ajahn Gunha is um, Ajahn Cha's nephew. Um, he has. Uh, the monasteries in Thailand, and the one he stays at usually is Wat Subtali. Um, he's awesome. Super supportive of the Kunis. And everyone. And currently teaching? Yes, at, uh, at Wat Subtali. It's not like you're going to see much of his teachings around. There are Subtali. I'm sorry, dyslexia hits again. Um, <laughs> Subtali. He's um, he's teaching, but I don't know. There's not that much in English. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As soon as we have the chance, we'll be going back and um, bringing lay people with us. We did that just before COVID hit, and we'll be doing it again when it gets safe to do it. Fantastic. So Maybe you can record some of it while you're so there. inclined... Um, there will be a, a trip out there together. Fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. And there's also an Arahant Mechi, an Arahant nun that lives very close to Ajahn Ganha's monastery, and there's a, a Mechi monastery there that she's leading, and Ajahn Ganha has built the Kutis there, and She's pretty awesome, too. What's her name? <laughs> I only know her by Long Mare, like Venerable Mother. You're not going to find anything about her online. She's just living her life. More questions? Oh, we're coming to the end of our time together. So I guess it might be time to chant again. I'd actually like to do two chants. We can do the highest blessings again, and then let's share the the merit, the sharing of blessings. All right. Now let us chant the verses on the highest blessings. Thus have I heard that the Blessed One was staying at Savati. Residing at the Jitta's Grove in Anatapindika's Park. Then in the dark of the night, a radiant Deva illuminated all Jitta's Grove. She bowed down low before the Blessed One. Then standing to one side, she said, Devas are concerned for happiness and ever long for peace. The same is true for humankind. What then are the highest blessings? 
avoiding those of foolish ways, associating with the wise, and honoring those worthy of honor. These are the highest blessings, living in places of suitable kinds, with the fruits of past good deeds, and guided by the rightful way. These are the highest blessings, accomplished in learning and craftsman skills, with discipline highly trained, and speech that is true and pleasant to hear. These are the highest blessings, providing for mother and father's support, and cherishing family, and ways of work that harm no being. These are the highest blessings, generosity and a righteous life, offering help to relatives and kin, and acting in ways that leave no blame. These are the highest blessings, steadfast in restraint and shunning evil ways, avoiding intoxicants that dull the mind, and heedfulness in all things that arise. These are the highest blessings, respectfulness and being of humble ways, contentment and gratitude, and hearing the Dhamma frequently taught. These are the highest blessings, patience and willingness to accept one's faults, seeing venerated seekers of the truth, and sharing often the words of Dhamma. These are the highest blessings, ardent committed to the holy life, seeing for oneself the noble truths and the realization of Nibbana. These are the highest blessings, although in contact with the world, unshaken the mind remains, beyond all sorrow, spotless, secure. These are the highest blessings. They who live by following this path, no victory wherever they go. And every place for them is safe. These are the highest blessings. <clears throat> now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana. In every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind. 
With mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor, may the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The Sangha, the solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and illusion be dispelled.